Suburban Folk is now live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Just download the Podbean app and search for Suburban Folk or visit suburbanfolk.podbean.com for the latest topic and login information. We'll talk about what I learned from our most recent episode, give previews of episodes to come, chat with our audience, and answer any questions they may have. We're grateful for all of our listeners that tune in and are excited to share the show to a larger audience. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on your favorite podcast platform is a big help, and be sure to share with your friends as well. For those looking to support us even further, a donation button has been added to our website at suburbanfolk.com. All money received will be 100% redirected into advertising and getting the word out about the show. Now sit back and enjoy this episode. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and entertainment. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm looking forward to having some real talk with some real folks. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. My guest today is journalist Larry Jorgensen, who's worked for newspapers, publications, radio, TV news, and does freelance and assignment writing. He now also writes books and articles on recent American history, including the Coca-Cola Trail, which features the towns that housed independent Coca-Cola bottling plants. Larry, thanks so much for joining the show today. Can we start off by you walking us through your background in writing and then ultimately how you came to writing books about recent American history? Well, my background, uh, you know, as they say in the biz, I'm an old news dog. Uh, started out at a very young age, actually while in high school, um, for working with a weekly newspaper. And from there, went to a daily. Um, then from there, got into the electronic end of news and was in radio news and television news. Um, mostly writing, reporting, and producing. Did some on-air in TV, but most of my on-air was in radio. I, I guess, as they say, I probably had a face for radio. <laughs> but uh, from there, got into freelancing and assignment work. Did some assignment work for uh, United Press and uh, did a lot of freelancing and just decided to, to pursue writing as one of my careers. I, I've done some other media work as well. Uh, but primarily, I'm, I'm a, a news dog that just still chasing that story, you know. Um, as far as the, the history, and I guess having come from a background of journalism and news and facts, uh, that's the kind of writing I do. Um, I like to go out and find the facts to a story that, that was or a time and place that was, gather it all together, add to it uh, new things that uh, maybe haven't been uh, revealed, and put it all together into a nice little package. That's sort of how we got into the books, is uh, short stories that sort of got out of control, I guess. <laughs> so bringing all together a bunch of different stories for a particular theme, which obviously we'll get into the theme of the Coca-Cola trail. And you're based in Louisiana. Have you always been based in Louisiana? No, actually, I'm uh, I'm what they call one of those damn Yankees. And uh, to explain the difference between a Yankee and a damn Yankee, a, a Yankee is somebody from up north. A damn Yankee is somebody from up north who didn't go home. And uh, actually, I was in the TV and radio in Louisiana in, in my earlier days. And, and I liked the state. I liked the people. I liked the atmosphere here. And my career took me on uh, TV in Green Bay and other places. But there was always that kind of soft spot in my heart for, for this, this state called Louisiana. And uh, when it got to the point where I could do something about it, I bought a place down here on a bayou and moved back here. And as uh, Louis Grizzard, the great columnist, once said, I nailed my shoes to the ground. And here I am. I will be interested in maybe some more specifics of, like you said, what drew you back. Because when I started to read through the book, what is exciting for me is I have the bucket list of hitting all 50 states at some point in my life. And admittedly, right now, one of the big holes uh, in my checklist is the South. So it's nice for me to be able to go through your book and get some of the 
different areas uh, of interest that I might want to put on the list. And also, of course, the fact, which I'm sure we'll get into, that there's a lot of towns that folks probably don't really know about. And it gives some history. I think of, for example, traveling from where I'm at in Virginia back to Pennsylvania to visit family. You know, you go through these small towns that seemingly don't have a lot going on and you'll see train museum signs or, of course, in Virginia, Civil War uh, museums and things like that that have very specific history that, hey, if I'm being honest, and I think others are being honest, they don't always take the time to see what it's all about. So I'm really happy to give myself uh, an anchor so that once I plan my trip into the South, again, it'll give me some history to at least go off of from there. So I'm curious, well, I'll just ask you now, uh, are there certain cultural things that you can point to specifically that drew you back to the South to ultimately live? Well, I think the the thing that drew me back to Louisiana, and, and people say that, you know, the country is made up of 49 states and Louisiana, <laughs> okay. uh, because it is so different. The people uh, are are very warm, very welcoming. The food is outstanding. Um, it's a lifestyle. It's that live and let live lifestyle, you know, and I like that. I, it's no stress. Um, people just take life for what it is. It's sort of that we're not going to ask a lot of you and don't you ask a lot of us. Just let's, let's boogie on together, you know, and uh, I like that. It, it's very conducive to writing because there's no stress in the rest of your life, and it allows you to be creative and and to talk to people and to explore, um, you know, avenues of interest. I just I totally like the state, and and I, I like the atmosphere here. And and often when my old Yankee friends ask why, I say, well, it's not for everybody, but it sure is for me. It fits me perfectly. Well, yeah, for the stereotype of the go-getters, I guess, in the North, maybe they wouldn't necessarily understand, but that sounds terrific to me <laughs> as far as live and let live. Um, so jumping into uh, the Coca-Cola Trail and was published in 2017, and was this similar to what you mentioned for your other writings, that it came together with a number of different stories you were doing and then brought together under that theme? How did, how did it come about that that was what you were going to write about? Well, it, it's interesting. I was doing, I had planned to do a freelance travel feature, and there are within 60, 70 miles of each other two unique Coca-Cola museums with some interesting history. In fact, they are the first and second chapter of the book. Uh, the first chapter in the first place is Vicksburg, Mississippi, where actually Coca-Cola was first bottled. And the second chapter is Monroe, Louisiana, and it's relatively nearby, um, where there is a Coca-Cola museum that recognizes the family that first bottled Coca-Cola and then went on to become one of the largest Coca-Cola bottlers in the country. Uh, so I thought that's two interesting nearby places to visit, interesting history, would be a good travel piece. So I set out to do that, and by the time I got to place number two, I had started to interview uh, people who were in that family and to learn more about it, and then they in turn told me about others throughout the country with similar stories, and it, it fascinated me so much that I thought there's more here than just a travel feature. And in talking with these people, I realized that even though there's probably been 200 books written about Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola corporate, you know, Atlanta, uh, no one had ever written a book that dealt with all the individual bottlers, the businessmen, the would-be businessmen, entrepreneurs, who said, you know, I think there's a potential here. I'm going to bottle Coca-Cola. And it was those people, and, and I've dedicated the book to them, that had it not been for all the independent young entrepreneurs that said, 
we think this has potential, and they invested money, blood, sweat, and tears in helping to create. In fact, we're instrumental in creating the world's best-known product, and no one has really bothered to put all that together. In fact, I'm doing a sequel. The book has been so well-received that we're doing a sequel with more of those people. Uh, that will be in the second book. Uh, they're amazing. They are the ones that certainly were most influential in creating Coca-Cola uh, as as we know it now. It's it's a great story, and I, and I've enjoyed doing it, and and I've met a lot of wonderful people. Uh, and heard their stories in the process of doing it. Just for my own sake, pronounce the name of the family that you're mentioning. Is it Biedenharn? Am I saying that right? Biedenharn. Right, Biedenharn. It was Joe Biedenharn that owned a little soda shop and uh, candy business. And he was had his own business, and then he distributed to other soda shops. So one of the things he did is he was serving Coca-Cola at the counter, buying the syrup from Atlanta, serving it, as many of them were, uh, over the counter is a, a, a drink. And uh, it was, and then he was also distributing the syrup to other soda fountains in the area. And it occurred to him that, you know, if this was bottled, I could get the drink to people in the country so they wouldn't have to come to Vicksburg. This was 1890s, you know. Um, that was a journey. Mm-hmm. So he he bought a little secondhand bottling uh, machine up in St. Louis, Missouri, because there, there was bottling going on at that time. There was, you know, the old sarsaparilla and all the flavored sodas. So, But no one thought about bottling Coca-Cola. And Joe thought, I'm going to try it. And it took off for him. And ironically, he the first among the first two cases he bottled, he sent them to Coca-Cola in Atlanta. And uh, the gentleman, Asa Candler, who was at that time owned Coca-Cola and was making the syrup, sent him a note back and said, it's okay. But he didn't seem much interested in it. And uh, as Joe observed, uh, he didn't even send my bottles back. You know? so, but uh, Joe continued to bottle Coca-Cola for five years before Coca-Cola recognized that it was something that should be done and then sold the rights to bottle Coca-Cola for a dollar, got the whole thing going nationally. That was five years later. But, you know, you talked about the travel uh, to these places. It's ironic. Uh, a Coca- Obviously, a Coca-Cola collector must have been from California sent me a message and said that he was planning his summer vacation around my book. So, that, that kind of ties in with what you were talking about, Greg, uh, planning a trip south with some things to see. Yeah, and had you thought about somebody wanting to do that? Did that play any role in how the chapters are made up? Like you mentioned, I, obviously I could tell that the first couple chapters um, are focusing, as you mentioned, on somebody that was the first to start bottling, seem to be one of the larger independent operations. And then as you get into later chapters, it seems like people maybe that were a little later on into the bottling and would also make sense that maybe their operations weren't quite as big, probably because at that time, uh, Coca-Cola started to bottle on their own. You know, of course you have plenty of information about when they're getting bought back or anything, but, but yeah, was, was there any thought from your standpoint of it being a, uh, um, geographical way to go and try and experience these areas? No, actually, what drove me from one chapter to another, two things. First of all, I, I had as a goal to, at least from a, sta- a travel standpoint, to make a chapter a place where people could go and learn about Coca-Cola history, but there was something there they could see, touch, and feel, whether it was an old Coca-Cola plant that now had become a boutique or a uh, 
a restaurant and brew pub or whatever. In fact, there's one uh, Coca-Cola plant in Georgia that a, a young man and his dad purchased because the young man was a Coca-Cola collector and he had so much material they didn't know what to do with it. So they built a Coca-Cola museum in an old falling down at that time Coca-Cola plant and brought it back to life. So these are the type of things I looked for. You know, what what is important to the history of Coca-Cola, like Chattanooga, but also where can you go see some of this? What What's there? What can I, you know, gee, that's a nice plant, but now if it's just apartment buildings, that's, you know, I don't have access to that. I can't see that. But if it's a restaurant, or if it's a neat little boutique mall, like in Griffin, Georgia, I can go in there. I can see the, the what Coca-Cola was and what it is now. And that was the motivation behind picking the locations. A lot of them were referred to me as I did the, the book and would do one chapter. Um, one of the people that I had talked to in that chapter would say, are you aware of that? And that would send me off in another direction. And um, and those are the good leads because these are Coca-Cola people that knew where there was Coca-Cola history you could still see. And in many cases, they would provide contact names, that uh, family names and so forth, that it would help me in my research. You mentioned having those additional emphasis points on not only the sites around Coca-Cola, but yeah, I will also acknowledge that I like that you have in here if and when somebody is going to see those particular sites. Here's what's there now. Like you said, whether it's a restaurant or not, one that sticks in my mind, I believe it was a town in Kentucky where they got flooded out and the owner said, wherever I find dry land, right? That was, that was the quote. Right. And then turns out, Turns out that a brewery ended up there that was called Dryland Brewery, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm assuming based on somewhat based on that story. But yeah, that's cool that, you know, people can use those things to plan a day trip or whatever, you know, they're trying to do with their vacation. So that if maybe the the, the Coca-Cola piece doesn't fill up their whole day, there are other things that they can go and, and take a look at while they're there. Well, that, that Paducah plant uh, is a beautiful structure. Um, when when it was built, he was determined to build one of the most beautiful plants ever. And today, it has become a major visitor attraction. Uh, besides the brewery, there's a uh, a pizza place in there. Uh, there's a couple other uh, neat little stores, and uh, it's like there's a bookstore. And just the, the building itself is so is so unique in design. Uh, that it, it's it gets a lot of attention, and again in the book, uh, it, uh, besides the things that are specific Coca Cola, I try to where, where it's possible say while you're here, here's something else. For example, at Paducah, and this has a tie even back to Vicksburg, there is a river in Paducah, and I write about it in the book that has. 2030 murals representing Paducah history. In fact, uh, the uh, State Historical Society has ranked it as one of the top visitor sites to see. Well, as it turns out, one of those murals on that wall are of the Coca-Cola plant as it appeared right after it was built. Now, to tie that to Vicksburg, Mississippi, There is a similar river wall along the Yazoo River in Vicksburg that also has a series of those murals, including one of the Biedenharn soda fountain as it became a bottling operation. The even closer tie to that is the gentleman who painted both of those walls is from Lafayette, Louisiana. He painted both of those, in addition to painting a rather unique mural inside the Coca-Cola plant in New Orleans. So his his work, he's sort of become, amongst other things, a, um, a mural artist 
who has brought some Coca-Cola back to life that you can see when you're in those towns. Uh, it's, it's similar to uh, Minden, uh, Louisiana, where we talk about the plant and, and how unique it is, but also the museum in Minden has, um, the public museum, has a special display of Coca-Cola memorabilia. And there are many like that around the country. Is that the same, hopefully I'm not getting my stories crossed here, but you also have a similar comparison to two towns not close to each other um, that had like the same signage from a company in Chicago. And even though, again, very different parts of the country, they happened to contract with the same company and very similar murals. Is, is that those two towns or was that even a different example? That, that's a, a different example. But again, I've got two chapters in there where I talk about Coca-Cola signs and murals and, and how uh, communities and businesses that have found them have gone to great efforts to either restore uh, or to preserve. Um, a good example, a, a wonderful story that I write about in Opelika, um, Alabama, there was a gentleman that had a, a family-owned hardware store, and he was expanding the store, tore down a wall, and there behind it was a Coca-Cola mural pristine condition and the only thing they could figure out is that it was painted outside and then when the store grew it was covered up by an interior wall and consequently it stayed in that almost new condition it has been certified by coca-cola as the oldest unrestored uh coca-cola mural in the country it's beautiful and we write about that in the book. They had a, a big celebration uh, to, to unveil it when they finally took all the wall down. And, and uh, But it's typical. There are communities where uh, fundraising efforts were done to preserve Coca-Cola murals. Um, the Coca-Cola bottling company called Coca-Cola Consolidated, which is in Charlotte, actually has a program now where they go around and restore for communities some of these uh, historic Coca-Cola murals, the old ones, you know, the ones that, that communities fell in love with and need to be restored. And there's a lot of that out there. Going back to if somebody really was going to go to every single town, you went to every single town at some point. So start to finish, again, the, the published date is 2017. When did you start the project to get to each town to get all of your information to final print ready to go? It was a, almost a three years, over two and a half year project. Wow. And there were a few of them that, um, I'll give you a good example, Placerville, California. It's a great story. I did not go to Placerville, but I did get some uh, some help, uh, some, uh, some writers out there that... Uh, I was able to contact and assisted me in that one. But it was such a good story that I knew I needed to get it in the book, and I thought the chances of me getting out to Placerville in, in the near future, um, just it wasn't going to happen. I wanted it in the book, and that's how we got it. But most of them were were visits of at least one time and sometimes more, much more than that to, to get everything I needed. So hopefully if somebody's trying to hit all these places, it won't take them two to three years. Obviously, you had a lot of work to do when you got got to them. But I was just curious of amassing the data um, of how long that would be. Yeah, well, and, and I, I think, you know, there, you're going to find, let's face it, Coca-Cola started in Atlanta, Georgia. And obviously, uh, the South, Southeast, you know, that's where the bulk of the real old Coca-Cola history is. And as I do book number two, I am trying to move further north. And the history, although it's not as uh, antique, is not as ancient, uh, is, is there as well. There are some unique stories in towns like Winona, Minnesota, and you know, Minneapolis, places like that, that uh, will be in the next book. But if if you're gonna head if you're gonna head out looking for old Coca-Cola history, 
you know, it's Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, the Carolinas. That's where it started. Uh, Tennessee, the chapter, chapter three, I think it is, a book on Chattanooga, Tennessee, gives a lot of the reason why Coca-Cola grew with the independent bottlers. The, the Chattanooga really sets the mood for what followed with Coca-Cola. And it's nice to see in that chapter you outlining not only the bottlers, but a couple of the other businesses that were able to grow in the area as a result of the bottling, um, a particular glass company, I think also, I'm going to say lumber company, that's not exactly right, but the company that was building like the, the crates and, and being able to store that. So right. um, that that's cool to see, you know, just sort of how there's outgrowth even from one industry into another. Well, and you had, you know, like Cavalier, the vending machine company uh, that, that started out because of Coca-Cola in Chattanooga. There's, there's, I, I'd say to people, there's almost as much Coca-Cola history in Chattanooga as there is in Atlanta, uh, from a variety of reasons. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, a lot to still be told. I think it, it's a very interesting, and, and they refer to the locals refer to Chattanooga as uh, Coca-Cola money. Because there was indeed a lot of wealthy people uh, in Chattanooga because of their involvement with the brand Coca-Cola. You know, that the interesting thing in that chapter uh, is how it all happened. And that's the fact that it was the two attorneys from Coca-Cola, I mean from Chattanooga, that finally convinced Coca-Cola to sell them the rights to bottle Coca-Cola. You know, Coca-Cola thought it was kind of a dumb idea, really. Asa Candler, the, and uh, but he gave in and sold the rights to these two attorneys from Chattanooga for a dollar. And it said he never collected the dollar. So here you've got two, you know, two gentle, young gentlemen that go back to Chattanooga, and they now have the rights to bottle Coca-Cola throughout the United States. And they probably, between the two of them, have $1,500. And they're saying, how are we going to get this accomplished? There is the reason that Coca-Cola grew. Because they said to themselves, wait a minute, we've got the rights, let's just sell the rights. And that's how it happened. They started selling the territories. You know, in fact, you mentioned Paducah. The uh, gentleman who bought the Paducah franchise, a 50-mile area, actually met these two uh, Chattanooga entrepreneurs while working on the Incline Railroad in Chattanooga. You know, and he said, gee, that sounds good. I think I'll buy the territory for Paducah. So that's really how it all got started. Kind of an early days of franchising. Also, while we're on the bottling and the and the glass companies in Chattanooga, there's an interesting section around how the Coke bottle came to be. Actually, let me back up a little bit even before that, that, you know, for people like me that probably most people, when you think of Coke, there is, of course, that very distinct classic bottle. And what you point out, very early on, you know, like you said, in the very beginnings of the 1890s, um, we're not talking about what we think of today of a glass bottle that you can throw in the recycling. It, these are very thick bottles. I think we're mostly corked with a cork. Um, and then I know you talk about like the metal wire that's in there, which I'm sure had considerations for taste potentially altering as well as even contaminants. And then ultimately it's a town in Indiana. Again, keep me honest here that entered the competition. Right. Terre Haute. Well, that, that, that in itself is an interesting story. And again, one of the uh, ancestors, one of the descendants of the uh, family that uh, actually created that model, uh, it helped me a great deal in putting that story together. But th- to summarize, by the 1900s, the bottling of, of cola had become pretty popular. And there were there were other brands that were popping up. You had Churro Cola. And you had just people, in fact, people were imitating 
to some degree, the Coca-Cola um, aspect, giving it names that sounded like Coca-Cola. Well, and bottling, there was no set standard for bottling. They said whatever the bottlers could get, that's what they'd put their beverage in. Coca-Cola realized that that was helping to confuse the public as to, is it really a Coke or is it something else? And so they issued to the glassmakers a challenge. We want a bottle that when people pick up that bottle, they know it's a Coca-Cola. It is to be our bottle and to be used only by our bottlers. Well, there were five bottle manufacturers that entered the competition and the one that ultimately won out was the root bottling company in Terre Haute, Indiana. They designed that specific bottle that we're familiar with now. It went to a bottler's convention in 1905 along with the five other entries and it was selected and at that point in 1906, it went into production and became the bottle for Coca-Cola. Smart move by Coca-Cola. And uh, that bottling company then not only bottled for Coca-Cola, but the rights to bottle that bottle, to manufacture that bottle by other glass companies was made available for a fee. And consequently, you had the company like the the bottle company in Chattanooga that became a major producer of the Coca-Cola bottle, but they were initially were paying a fee um, to bottle, to make that bottle to the root glass company in Terre Haute, Indiana. Ultimately, and I'd have to look at my notes to tell you the exact year, but I think it was in the thirties that Coca-Cola purchased the rights to the bottle and made it available to all the bottlers instead of it coming from um, the rights owned by the Root Glass Company. But uh, the Root family itself is a tremendously interesting story. And uh, the, the chapter in the book is called Root, the Bottle and the Bottler, because they also became a major bottler and became involved in many other uh, things that we're familiar with, uh, such as the Indianapolis 500, etc., uh, auto racing. So they're, 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 they're quite a family, and we try to, to detail that family in our book. I wonder, like you mentioned in the beginning, you know, Candler didn't necessarily have bottling on his radar up until, you know, this point of having a proprietary Coke bottle that, again, you know, we all are aware of today. Uh, not that this would be something you would highlight in the book, but when you were doing your research, was there ever any, call, call it a cross-section between the Coca-Cola company getting their arms around, you know, that proprietary bottle and, like you said, sort of weeding out counterfeits or, you know, whatever else might be going on while they were, again, getting their arms around the overall process and, and managing, I guess, the uh, independent bottlers? Well, yeah, the independent bottlers realized that it was to their advantage to have a bottle that would be recognizable as their product because they were finding in their own communities competition that was claiming to have the same quality as a Coca-Cola and using whatever bottle they could use. And, in fact, there were there were some bottlers that uh, actually went to Coca-Cola corporate and succeeded in having Coca-Cola corporate uh, threaten legal action to set, shut some of these down. I, I think a, probably the best example was uh, there was a, a drink called Churro, C-H-E-R Cola. And uh, Coca-Cola, for whatever reason, saw them as a major threat and uh, because they were becoming fairly big, they were, they were having their own bottlers and so forth. And Coca-Cola was successful in getting them to change the name of that drink. Uh, ultimately 
that Bottler became the Nehi Bottling Company, and then they also became a name that we're still familiar with, which is RC Cola. But it was started out as churro and was a, a, a competitive threat, at least as viewed by Coca-Cola. So they did try to, uh, the, the, the bottlers, you know, supported 100% the need for proprietary uh, identification. You know, there was no doubt about that. So there was never a problem in Coca-Cola encouraging the bottlers to use the new bottle that had been designed. And that's an interesting relationship because I found my mind comparing these stories to today's craft beer stories. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just because it's always in the news. And of course, it's the opposite, right? (laughs) When you say Anheuser-Busch compared to independent craft breweries, it is definitely uh, a competitive (laughs) relationship to say the least. So yeah, sort of switching my mind to it being uh, Coca-Cola and the independent bottlers being on the same side admittedly took a little bit for me to get. And I think even when you know, there's acknowledgments of buyouts, consolidations, and things like that. I sort of wonder, like, oh, you know, was this sort of a hostile takeover, or you know, how how uh, collegial was was the relationships through the years with these independent bottlers and Coca Cola? Well, there there were two times that there was a a tense relationship, uh, and it it changed depending on the ownership, the presidency of Coca-Cola. There was one instance where uh, the the president of Coca-Cola was pretty aggressive, uh, told the Coca-Cola bottlers that he didn't think that their contract uh, was forever, that it could be, it could be canceled at any time. Well, now, remember that the bottling contracts didn't come specifically from Coca-Cola corporate. They came from the the companies, the two companies that were set up by the two individuals that obtained the rights to sell Coke bottled Coca-Cola. So you didn't buy, if you had the plant in Paducah, you didn't buy your rights to bottle from Coca-Cola corporate. You bought it from one of those two, what they called parent bottlers, uh, the, the two gentlemen that had obtained the exclusive rights to bottle Coca-Cola. So it, the, and the families of those two initial, the sons of, well, in one case, the son, in another case, the nephew, um, then became the owners and controllers of those parent companies, and they defended the independent bottlers and fought off any attempt by Coca-Cola to take away those contracts. They were successful. Uh, Another time uh, that they were successful in uh, standing up for the bottlers against Coca-Cola corporate was when there was the sugar crisis and the price of sugar was going up and and Coca-Cola wanted to greatly increase the price of the syrup and there was quite a uh, a battle on that and again there was a compromise but it was because the bottlers had the two parent bottlers doing defending them so there, it wasn't always harmonious but most of the time Coca-Cola corporate was extremely glad to have the bottlers and at one point got pretty aggressive in buying some of the bottlers out because they realized the potential and some of the bottlers were ready to sell. Um, So Coca-Cola went through a stage of buying independent bottlers and it actually got too much for them. you know, Coca-Cola had forgotten that what really made Coca-Cola is the fact that the bottlers were so involved in their communities. And Coca-Cola, uh, starting in the late 80s and even up through the 90s, and even recently, uh, has sold back or formed relationships 
to give territories back to existing independent bottlers because the fact is the independent bottlers can cover the territory and provide the service a lot better. And and it took Coca-Cola a while, I think, and this is just my opinion, to realize that that was the case. And it certainly is reflected in the fact that a lot of the independent bottlers uh, now have territories that they regained from Coca-Cola. Well, given what you seem to see with business stories nowadays, that's sort of a refreshing story to be able to tell that it is going back to... Uh, the independents that can handle it and sort of, you know, know their business. And hopefully even from there, uh, again, when we profile sort of these smaller towns, you know, they're able to keep their viability. So that is definitely a nice story to be able to tell. Uh, Focusing in on the different business owners, the independent bottlers, and, you know, like you mentioned, there is a theme on families. So that's something I definitely got from the book that, in seemed like most cases, sure there were some that that uh, sold the business out, but there were also many that uh, kept the business within their family. Are there other characteristics that you noticed as you were doing your research that grouped these folks together? Were they were they true visionaries? Let's say that they zeroed in on Coca Cola compared to, like you said, there's other things being bottled at the time. All most of them had an existing bottling company just yeah what what similarities did you see across the board with the different folks getting into this business well yeah i did i saw two things there were those that had existing bottling companies and they cautiously approached the idea of adding coca-cola as one of the things they would bottle and many of them tell the same story about when they first started bottling coca-cola when they would uh, send a case of, uh, you know, lemon, sarsaparilla, whatever, orange to one of their customers, they would slip in a couple bottles of Coca-Cola to get them to try it. And, and that was kind of a common practice. So you had the existing bottlers who cautiously thought, yeah, there's something here, let's try it. Uh, but, they, but they had a business, so they they were already moving in that area of bottling. Then you had the young entrepreneur who heard of a beverage that sounded like it was something different and it was an opportunity. And many of them scraped together whatever dollars they could to buy a franchise. In fact, there were, uh, we talk about the two parent bottlers. One of those parent bottlers actually sold half of his company to a gentleman in Chattanooga who would then also set up independent bottlers. And many times he would select friends, even relatives. And if they didn't have the money to complete the deal, he'd put up the money. And and in return, he would get 50 or even larger percent of the bottling business. So he, in fact, created a bottling empire that by setting up other bottlers, providing some of the funding and taking a partial ownership, he became, in fact, the largest independent Coca-Cola bottler in the country. And when Coca-Cola started buying Coca-Cola distributors, Coca-Cola independent bottlers. By that time, this company had passed down to a third generation, and there was not much desire to continue the business, but a lot of desire to obtain the value of the business. Coca-Cola corporate bought that entire entity for one Point three with a B billion dollars, and that that is part of that Coca-Cola money in Chattanooga that they talk about. So there were there were a lot of people that benefited financially by getting on board with Coca-Cola, and and that gentleman 
who bought half of a half became extremely wealthy doing it. And I know you end a lot of the chapters with ultimately, you know, what the families did with their business or the business owners, I should say. And yeah, like you said, you calculate out whether it's that big 1.2 billion. I know there are a couple other calculations for stock that that some owners had received even in Coca-Cola and what it would be worth, you know, a hundred years later. Now, of course, easy for, you know, me to read and say, oh man, that's, you know, like a lottery ticket, but Hey, you know, you don't necessarily know that at the time, especially if, um, you know, you have somebody offering to buy it for whatever amount and, you know, that'll make you set at that point, but it is, yeah, very interesting to read that and say, man, you know, they, they really (laughs) picked a winner here. What would have been, the risk at the time of bottling Coca-Cola? Was it just really uh, an unknown flavor uh, or just unknown brand? Um, Again, the other sodas had already been out there. So I guess it's almost a two-part question. Um, What would have been the perceived risk for people that said, okay, yeah, we're going to bottle this and we're going to try that. Um, And then on the other end, once they did do it, any thoughts for what did ultimately make Coca-Cola stand out from the other sodas that were already being bottled and distributed? Well, I think the, the ultimate risk, you know, uh, the immediate risk, rather, is that of starting a business. You know, a business you've never been in, how do I do it? You know, and you buy whatever bottling equipment, a lot of it, most of it in the early days, all of it was hand operated, you know, a foot pedal and, you know, a carbonation. And, you know, they talk about those early plants that sometimes the, the bottlers, uh, you know, would work with screen mesh over their face because the carbonation sometimes would cause the bottles to explode. So you had, you had that initial risk of, of, of financing a startup starting a plant and and then once you get your product made how do you get how do you distribute it and who will buy it from you you don't want to sell a bottle to a man on the street corner you want to sell a case to the drugstore on the street corner you know um the the gentleman in again we go back to paducah his first case that he bottled he took it to his neighborhood drugstore. He knew the man there well and convinced him to just put the case out on display and see if anybody would buy it and then pay me afterwards. And that's what a lot of them did. They did whatever they could to get the product sampled. And it was not an immediate thing of, oh, this is great because the flavor was so unique. But once People really got used to the flavor of Coca-Cola. They demanded it, and from there it went. But how do you know that when you're starting a business and you take your first case of product to a drugstore and the man accepts it only because he's your friend and he feels sorry for you? And he's thinking to himself, I don't know about this, but we'll do this for old Joe, you know. And uh, so that's the battle they had. They had an unknown commodity. And uh, they had to convince, you know, people it was good. And fortunately, the Coca-Cola company, even in the early years, believed in promotion and advertising. You know, I mentioned in the book, on one of my sections about signs, old Coca-Cola signs, Asic Handler one time said to a movie producer in Hollywood, it will be to the point that you will not be able to produce a film outside without getting a Coca-Cola sign in the background. And that's, and that's almost true. I mean, you look around you, they're everywhere, you know? And I remember reading that exact quote. And then of course, goes on for the history where you talk about Times Square. And of course, and I can absolutely picture, you know, the massive Coca-Cola advertising there, which even tying back to sort of what would have been the risk for the business owners. I think it's hard for us to sit here knowing what a household name it is and imagining any point in time when it would have been considered a risky venture. But, you know, to your point, like 
it was, <laughs> certainly, and especially for folks that are sort of getting into the business for the first time. We talked about the bottle. I want to digress there because I'm going to give you a little something that's in the second book that's coming out. Great. The uh, Coca-Cola bottle is green, mm-hmm. right? It has right. a green tint to it. And why? And why is that? Well, we tell the story in book number two, but the reason is, remember, there was a the, the person, the company that created that bottle was in Terre Haute, Indiana. One of the things they owned was a, a sand quarry about 50 miles away from Terre Haute. And they would get the sand to make the bottles at that quarry. Well, as it happened, that particular quarry, which ironically is located near a town called Greencastle, um, had minerals within the sand that created the green tint in the bottle. Coca-Cola liked that so well, they initially called the color German green, and then I guess they thought better of that, and they called it Georgia green. But in any case, they specified to other bottle manufacturers that if you make a bottle and your sand does not have the minerals, then you must add them so that the bottle will be green. And that's that's why the Coca-Cola bottle has that green tint to it, the original bottles. You know, and imagine that's around 20s, 30s, 40s. So yeah, you're right. The the German name probably didn't go over so well in that time period. <laughs> no, no, they they decided that was not a good decision. So, <laughs> I can but, imagine. Uh, but in, in any case, again, it's it's how things sort of piece together to create this this iconic symbol of Coca Cola. A lot of it was, I don't want to say accidental, but certainly was not in the plan. And again, tying back to just even the theme of the book in general, it's cool that Terre Haute happen to have that as a signature of the town or at least of the people doing the bottling that they won that competition and now it's a forever signature in what we have in our mind as you know standard coca-cola and, and part of their brand so it's it's really cool i think to see that as a particular part of the country this was you know where their story was with coca-cola and just in again american history um and then that you know, made its way through even into today. Well, there's a lot of Coca-Cola history in Indiana. Uh, if you're looking at an adventure, uh, Terre Haute is a great place to visit. They have just built a new museum, historical museum, downtown. They have a large section that deals with, as they call it, the birth of the Coca-Cola bottle, which it is, that town. And the town is has a, uh, a celebration once a year in honor of that. Uh, you'll find large Coca-Cola bottles uh, painted up throughout the city. They, they are very proud of their Coca-Cola bottle heritage. And it's a great little city to visit. Uh, they, they certainly certainly take advantage of, of that, that piece of history. And there's, there's other places in Indiana as well with Coca-Cola history. The uh, bottling plant in Indianapolis, for example, when it was built, was one of the largest, most artistically creative plants uh, ever. In fact, all of the Officials from Coca-Cola corporate turned out for the grand opening of that plant, and uh, it it stands today and is the whole area is being converted into a rather uh, unique, renewed downtown area. Uh, so again, it's it's something worth seeing. Indiana, there's a lot of small bottlers in Indiana. Uh, for whatever reason, that have unique stories, and we're going to cover some more of them in the second book. So, yeah, this and that's what you find. You find this throughout the South and the Near South. You find a lot of Coca-Cola history. Going off of that, uh, as far as the celebrations and the overall interest in Coca-Cola history, American history, can you talk a little bit about 
Coca-Cola enthusiasts, collectors, historians, um, what have you found sort of getting into that community and what is it like? They are amazing. There are Coca-Cola collector chapters throughout, at least in every state. In some states, there are several. There are collector groups in Australia. In fact, some of them have bought the book from me. They're in Japan. They're in China. They're everywhere. Uh, Canada, and and what they collect is amazing. They have been able to find treasures that were limited production, two and three item productions, have been able to find them and preserve them. They have annually, they have uh, a big convention. This year the convention will be July 7th through the 11th in Green Bay, Wisconsin, all of these collectors will come together. Um, they will have rooms at the hotel where they will swap back and forth. And then on the Saturday of the convention, there is a big, it's, first it's open only to collectors and then to the public, a large trade show, if you want to call it, swap meet, whatever. But if you are looking for or if you are interested in Coca-Cola memorabilia, these are the people. Their conventions are the places to go. But the chapters throughout the country will have their annual, sometimes uh, twice a year, uh, conventions, gatherings, swap meets, where, again, you meet interest, interesting people. They're not only interesting because they collect this iconic trademark, but because in the process of collecting it, they learn stories about it. They learn stories about where did it come from. They're a great source of, of information, of history, of Coca-Cola, because the history comes with the items. Uh, my second book, uh, in fact, I was working on the chapter last night. There's a gentleman who has a museum just outside of Decatur, Illinois. He started collecting by accident about 30 years ago, and he got addicted to it. And his museum, which is just opening, has items in it that are, I don't want to say one of a kind, but one of five or one of 12, this type of thing, and uh, certainly worth uh, visiting. Uh, and again, it's a case where someone got involved uh because he saw a poster, it attracted his attention, and the next thing he started talking to the Coca-Cola collectors, they're a great group of people, and they have a world of information, and they'll share it with you, and you, in the meantime, you can see, touch, buy, if you want to, some pretty unique products. So yeah, Coca-Cola collectors, What again, the success of Coca-Cola, what other brand has that extensive group of people that collected. There are people that collect, you know, uh, beer memorabilia. Uh, I, I know a lot of them well. In fact, I used to dabble at that. Uh, there are people that collect certain uh, beverages, Verner's, uh ginger ale, Dr. Pepper, etc. But there is no group as large or as enthusiastic, or as worldwide as the Coca-Cola collectors. They're quite a group, and anybody who's at all interested, you don't have to collect to be interested, but you would certainly enjoy visiting with them. Again, another theme of the book is by proxy, you get a really nice slice of American history with it as well. So maybe if you know, researching Coca-Cola hadn't occurred to a particular person, um, you know, there's plenty here that can, you know, pique your interest <laughs> in other sort of American history. Uh, one other quick uh, anecdote from the book, uh, you talk about one of the plants that was um, bottling Coke for POWs, German POWs during World War II. And it sounds like that's how they had their real kickstart. Um, and you'll have to remind me that the town that that one was in. But again, you get sort of that relative to what was going on at the time. Well, yeah, that was Aliceville, Alabama. 
And uh, in fact, there's a museum there that is worth visiting because the museum, the city museum, is located in the old Coca-Cola plant. And some of the original uh, Coca-Cola bottling equipment is still in that museum uh, on display and is kept up for people to see and, and learn about the bottling. But the unique thing, when you talk about the prisoners of war, Aliceville, Alabama, had one of the largest POW camps in the, in the South at that time. And the prisoners, uh, the German prisoners, were brought there, and they didn't know what to expect. They, they anticipated harsh treatment. Instead, you know, this Coca-Cola plant was excluded from the sugar rationing of the war and was allowed to bottle 24 hours a day if need be to make sure that not only the prisoners of war, but our boys who watched them had plenty of Coca-Cola to drink during the war. And many of those, I don't many, but some of them, some of the German prisoners were so amazed at the treatment that they received that they stayed in Alabama after the war. They they loved it, you know. They want to go home, and uh, again, maybe it's that old Coca Cola with a smile thing. I don't know, but it certainly it certainly played a part in Aliceville, Alabama, and, and that's a great little museum to see. And and it not only features Coca Cola history, but it has a lot of history. Uh, and things that were made by the prisoners at that POW camp. So it, it has uh, a lot of that history there as well. That's yeah, a, it's a good museum to visit. It's, it should be on your bucket list. Very cool. I will make sure to highlight that one. Well, Larry, that is most of the questions that I had for you. I had a great time talking with you, and I really enjoyed reading the book. I'm excited to hear that there's a part two coming. Um, before we sign off, do you want to go ahead and give your information, how folks can contact you, um, if you have a release date coming for either the, the follow-up to the Coca-Cola Trail or any other books you're working on? Right. The, uh, the, the new book, my target is to have it ready for the Green Bay Convention in July, and I, I think we'll make that. The current book and the future book will be available at my website, which is simply coca-cola-trail.com. It is available through Amazon. Uh, I have a wonderful publisher who is in Pennsylvania, by the way. The book will be available. I'm, I'm finding it in many of the museums are buying it, especially museums in the towns where we've written about Coca-Cola. The gift stores are buying it. A lot of the country stores that have, if you walk in and there's a, Coca-Cola sign on the wall at that store for sale, you, you, you may find our book there as well. So it's kind of a hit and miss thing. Uh, it's not a Barnes and Noble, you know, it's not a books a billion. Uh, we're a different animal. We're a, we're a, a travel, a collector's type thing, but we've sold a lot of them and uh, we're looking forward to the same thing with issue number two, which I guess we'll probably just simply call Back on the trail, more people and places. So, uh, and, and and again, it's a, it's a joy to do. I'll certainly keep a lookout for it. And when we release the episode, of course, we'll put your website on the show notes as well as a link to the Amazon page. And you know, like you said, if there's other outlets, we should include. We'll go ahead and do that as well. Well, Larry, again, I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to us today and anything we missed before we sign off. No, we could do this all morning, Greg, but I think we've <laughs> taken up enough of your time and, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to share these memories with you, Greg. It's been, it's been a lot of fun and uh, we'll keep you posted on future Coca-Cola adventures. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as you get closer to book release, if you'd like to come back on, I would love to have you. We'll do that. And I appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. Here's to a great 2020. Cheers. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly shows, please hit the subscribe button. Thank you. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network. Ghosts. Spectres. 
whatever you want to call them, they've been around for thousands of years. Apparently she died from a tooth infection in one of the upstairs rooms in the house. As at the locations they haunt. History of a Haunting podcast tells you all about these famous, infamous, and almost famous locations. And why they became terrifying places to visit. Grab a glass of wine and settle in with your hosts, Archie. I mean, that was definitely the wrong thing to do. And Carrie. Nobody asked for it, Carrie. Nobody fucking asked for it, but hey, my podcast and I'll say what I want. (laughs) Two people just winging it in life and this podcast. So enjoy this week's episode of History of a Haunting. 